to him, God, that it would be your spirit speaking through him, um, God, that through the actions of Nehemiah, um, we would have something that we can, we can take from tonight, um, that we could really love our city well, the way that you've loved us. God, I thank you for how beautiful you are, how glorious you are, and for the fact that we get to share in your love and sharing your presence. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone, again. It's great to be back from North Carolina after uh, being gone last weekend. And know that there are many people that most of you don't know that are praying for you. They're praying for this church. They're praying for the city of Portland. And they're excited about what God is doing in this place. Um, and I'd say they're more excited than they've ever been before. And I really put the call out there for them to have a growing burden and almost like a calling to help see this church established in this city. So we were there for a missions conference and then also got to preach last Sunday, which is a great privilege uh, just to get to stand in front of all these people who I've known since I was about my youngest son's age, Oliver, and uh, just get to encourage them and also how they got to encourage us and what it is that we're doing here in the city of Portland. Two weeks ago, uh, I think most of you are probably here, but if you weren't, we started studying the book of Nehemiah. And if you're new with us or maybe you're new to the Bible, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, which means it occurs before the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we have the storyline of how God has chosen people of Israel. They're to be his chosen people. And even though he showed grace and mercy and love to them, they rebelled against him, similar to what many of us, all of us, have done. And so as a result of the rebellion, God takes them, he sends them into exile for some time, but God does not abandon them. So there's still good news in that. Uh, the book of Nehemiah and the one right before it, Ezra, which originally are one book in the Hebrew scriptures, are about how God is restoring his people. In the book of Nehemiah, God gives Nehemiah a special burden to rebuild the walls of the destroyed city of Jerusalem, which is what we've been looking at while we've taught our, our series for the city. And as we work through this series, we framed it this way. The people of God exist for the good of the city where they live. And so for us, that means for the good of the city of Portland where we live is really why we exist, why God has placed us here for this season of life. Some of us are from here. Some of us are transplants to here. Some of us have been here for 30 years and feel like we're from here, but we're not really sure. But either way, Regardless how long you've been here, God has placed you here for the good of this city. Uh, Kevin did an excellent job last week as he continued our series, and he left us with three truths to love our city. If you missed it like I did, I'll recap those for us. The first truth is that the Lord is sovereign and works, even through powerful rulers. And so the question he gave us is, are you trusting God, entrusting in God's good and sovereign plan? I think day in and day out, that's really difficult for us. Sometimes we don't see that good and sovereign plan if we're just frank and just honest. But are you trusting in that? The second truth is God uses those who are prepared and ready to accomplish his work. And so the questions underneath that were, are you prepared to love your city? Have you prayed and asked God to do this as we see Nehemiah model in chapter 1? Have you offered your time and your resources to serve the church? The third truth is you will face opposition when doing the work of the Lord. And the question is, have you hidden God's word in your heart? to combat the attacks of the evil one. I don't know about you guys, but I sense this day in and day out. Even this afternoon, there's a, a period of time, I'm like, I'm just starting to sense 
something creeping inside of me that I feel is the enemy at work oftentimes. And those voices that we get inside of our head, which sometimes can be really good voices, but sometimes those can be really bad and negative voices. And so have you hidden God's word in your heart to combat the attacks of the evil one? Now, once Nehemiah arrives in the city, you would think maybe it gets a little bit easier. If you remember from week one, the big challenge seemed like getting into the city. He had to go to the king, which happened to be his boss, and he had to ask the king for time off. But you'd be wrong. Over the last couple of weeks and even into tonight's chapter, what we're going to see is this is what happens in Nehemiah's life. The first thing we see is that he moves from theory to practice. And so he kind of starts out with this theory of like, I want to go rebuild the walls of this city. And so there's a theory there, but he's going to move it into practice. And we see he moves from a calling to an execution. So this was a calling that he had received, a burden that he had received. But it's one thing to have that, but it's another thing to actually execute upon that. And he moves from talking about out it to actually doing it. So it's easy for us to talk about, man, we really need to be over there. And we talked about all the stats of our city and we know the, the brokenness of our city. It's one thing to talk about it or read about it in the paper or tweet about it, but it's another to actually do something about it. And so Nehemiah moves from talking about it to actually doing something about it. Most of you know that this church started as a burden and calling in the life of my family. Uh, prior to moving to Portland, we spent two years traveling around, telling a story of what we believed God wanted to do in the city of Portland and the part that we believe he wanted us to play in this story. It was exciting to sit in front of dozens of groups of people and to cast vision. It's almost like I was on an episode of Shark Tank. I love that show. But every time I went to meet with these groups of people, I'd have to like stand before them and give them this presentation, which after you do it many times, you get pretty good at giving that presentation. It's kind of polished, and you know the right uh, stats to throw out and the right jokes and those kind of things. But I was like on an episode of Shark Tank in hopes that these groups would invest in the kingdom of God in the city of Portland. It was an exciting time all the way up to the point that we were on the last day of driving all the way across the country. I still remember passing Multnomah Falls. It was drizzling. It was June 15, 2017. And as we pulled into the city of Portland, it all of a sudden hit me. Oh, crap. What if this doesn't work? What if we fail at everything we've just told everyone over the last two years? Then what are we going to do? We've all been there. I know we have a number of fairly recent college graduates that are part of our church. And upon graduation, you started receiving that inevitable and dreaded question from family and friends. What are you going to do now? This is a logical question, especially if you're like me and your parents help pay for your way through school. They want to know, what are you, you going to do with all the education I just helped pay for that I'm probably still paying for? And so what do you do? You cast vision for what you think will be next. In modern vernacular, we often call this fake it till you make it. Now, not that Nehemiah was faking it, but I think the point being, we all know what it's like to cast vision. We've all been in Nehemiah's shoes, but in different instances of life. Whether that be when we got engaged and we're saying, we hope that our marriage is like this, because everyone wants to know, where are you going to live and when are you going to have kids and all those questions. And so we say, well, we're going to engage in hopes that our marriage is like this, this type of marriage that we want to have. Or maybe it's whenever it's time that, that you say, we want to have kids. And you say, these are the type of parents that we hope to be. The day that we do have kids, you know, now that I've got three of my own and looking back at the things that I hope, I remember reading three parenting books whenever Andrea was pregnant with Elliot and thinking, man, I've got this parenting thing down. I don't know why they say it's so hard. I know how to raise my, my child in a gospel-centered home and how to disciple a child in the ways of Jesus. And, and then now that they are eight, six, and four, I'm like, okay, I need to reread those books. I need to say scriptures. I don't have a clue what I am doing. Or maybe it's, it's your job and career path. You say, I'm really hoping to go into this. I'm hoping to do these things. This is why I got this education. And so you're casting a vision for what you think it's going to look like. But we see at Nehemiah over the last couple of weeks, he's moved from theory to practice as he made a plan, which is exactly what we need to do by following the example of the man with a plan. And so I look at, back on all those trips and all those meetings of casting vision for sojourn, and that's exactly what we did. 
We said, we're going to come up with a plan for how we think planting a church can look in the city of Portland. Now, I'll be honest, and most of you won't be surprised, but I've had to make adjustments. I've had to pivot once I got in the city and actually learned the rhythms of the city and, and learned the seasons of the city and the darkness and the light. And, and then meeting with pastors who've been here for 15, 20 years and just picking their brains and saying, help me figure this out. But we came up with a plan. And that plan includes where we would start, how we would get there, and where it is that we wanted to go. And so for us as a church, it includes asking questions like, where do we want to end up? Both for you individually, where is it that you're headed, but where is it that the church, where is it collectively we are headed? Where is it that God wants us to go? Now, some of you, maybe you're a forward thinker. So maybe you already think in these terms and you're always planning ahead. I, uh, I hate to confess this, but I bought a 2020 calendar about two weeks ago, big desk calendar. And so I'm already like filling it out on things that are coming up, but we already have teams that want to come and things that we're going to be preaching through and teaching through. And so I'm already like planning all that stuff. So some of you, maybe you're like me and you, you kind of are forward thinking and what's coming up and you try to anticipate those kind of things. But maybe some of you aren't so forward thinking. But if you are forward thinking, are you forward thinking about the right things? Which is really what we see Nehemiah um, exemplify for us here. Think of it this way. Many of us are, we're, we're forward thinking when it comes to our money. At least hopefully we kind of enter that stage post-college, early adult life, we start thinking through money and budgets. And you got a budget for rent, and you know you got your bills to pay. And if you want to eat food other than ramen noodles, not the good ramen we have, but the cheap ramen package you get in college, you've got to really plan for these things. And sometimes we'll, we'll budget for things like a new iPhone. Okay, maybe I'm only talking to myself there. I know the iPhone 11 came out this week. But, or some kind of new gadget or new toy that will say, man, we're going to put money away for this. I guarantee if I went around and looked at all of your bank accounts, which would be illegal, that you all have money that you're setting aside for something. So you're forward thinking, but are you forward thinking when it comes to generosity and giving towards the kingdom of God? So are you, are you planning in the right way, or is it that you're hoarding it for yourself? Because we all, we all have, we find the money for the things that we really value. And if we look at our bank account, that'll be uh, said. Now we come to chapter 3, which brings us to the actual rebuilding of the wall in the book of Nehemiah. This chapter, it can seem a bit confusing. If some of you are maybe you're reading ahead, you may actually scratch your head and say, why in the world would this chapter be included in the book of Nehemiah. It reads more like an appendix than it does an, a next chapter of a book. Charles Swindoll's book, Hand Me Another Brick, is actually one of the most popular books on the, on the book of Nehemiah to come out in the last 20 to 30 years. He actually skips this chapter entirely. So one of the most popular books in our, our modern day on the book of Nehemiah doesn't even go over this chapter at all. And I think as I read it and as I study it this week, I get it. It's a long list of names and places. But there's actually much significance that comes out of this chapter. Now, for the sake of time, don't say I skipped it. We're not actually going to read through it. I do encourage you to do that on your own. But we will look on different verses. And what you're going to see is it reads like a long list of movie credits at the end of a film. So when the film ends, you see, kind of see those running credits of who played what role and what, what you know, um, character they fulfilled. That is similar to how this chapter of Nehemiah reads. And so the people... What we see is they work systematically on rebuilding these walls. And here the building work is described and the workers are named in detail section by section. And so if you're wondering, the point of this chapter is to show that the people as a whole, they responded to the challenge given by Nehemiah and they believed that God would give them success. And so we see the people will rise up to this challenge that he has given them. And they actually believe that God, God is going to do this work. God is going to give us success in what it is that he has given a burden and calling to Nehemiah to do. And the description of the work demonstrates the concerted effort of the people. And so we see this appearing list of names and gifts of people who leverage. 
their lives for this common purpose. If you look at verse 1, it says, Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, what stands out here to me in the opening verse is that we see servant leadership demonstrated here by priests, by high priests, who did not normally engage in this kind of menial work. And so you think about a priest, their giftingness and calling, it lay elsewhere. They're not supposed to be the ones who are out rebuilding the gate. We can hire out another, a hired hand to do that type of work. But we see that this was a time for them to demonstrate that they wanted there to be unity, and they were demonstrating their leadership by being servant leaders and saying we, the high priests, want to be an example as part of this rebuilding effort, this rebuilding project. Then in verse 8, we see it says, Next to them, Uzel, the son of Harai, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hanani, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And so he's showing us that we had priests, but then we also have goldsmiths. Then we have perfumers. And it goes on to list all these different types of people and all these different types of trades and careers. This included men, included women, included what some would say the lower caste and then the higher caste. All kinds of social economic backgrounds were included. And everyone said, we are going to do our part. In addition to this, we see Levites and temple servants. We see rulers and administrators and other merchants all working alongside one another. So what's the point? The point is that Nehemiah gathers all people from all walks of life and he puts them to work. So he basically gets all the different people and he delegates all of these different tasks because he knows that, yes, this is a calling that he's received from God and a burden that he's received, but he knows that he cannot do this on his own. So the people were working, they were relying on God's promises, they were practicing neighbor love with one another. I mean, you got to think, in order to pull this off, you got to be pretty nice with the neighbors who are working around you and try not to get in each other's way. They were exercising loyal faith in a project that they knew to be at the heart of God's design for the kingdom and his church and at a particular moment in the history of redemption. So there's more significance here than I think we realize, which is why, once again, I see that most people just kind of brush over. And as I first read it, I'm thinking, how in the world am I supposed to teach on this chapter? It's just a bunch of names and their, their jobs and what it is that they're working on. But I want to ask, what might that look like for us today in the city of Portland? As we think about this idea of being for the city, I would say that this looks like normal people living with gospel intentionality. You see, Nehemiah was given a burden and a calling from God, which he recognized, I cannot carry this out alone. And so what does he do? He manages to get everyone on board. So imagine he's going to those, those meetings and really casting this vision, and, and he was able to get the, everyone says, yes, we're in. We want to help with us. What, how can I do my part? The longer I'm in the city of Portland, the deeper burden and calling I sense towards seeing a citywide movement. And I think Nehemiah has actually brought this out of me just the last several weeks. I've been having some conversations with some friends. I say, yes, God gave me a calling to move to Portland and to plant Sojourn. And I, and I really hope Sojourn has a significant part of this, and I'm committed to that. But also sense that God wants us to do something bigger. You know, I look at each local church, regardless big or small, and say they're all, we're all just kind of a slice of the overall picture of the pie of what it is that God wants to do here. And here's the cool thing. I know that I'm not the first person to receive this burden and calling. Now, this doesn't mean I stole it or took it from somebody else. What this means is it's confirmation to others and to myself that, man, God is really wanting to stir something here in our city, which is actually why I want some of us to attend this prayer meeting on Saturday. 
That's the type of people that show up at those events are the ones that go, it can't be about one network or one tribe or one denomination or one person. It's got to be all of us, the people of God, the, the big capital C church of Portland coming together and seeking God on behalf of our city. And so Nehemiah, he needed others. And God designed it so that we would do life with one another. God designed it so that we need accountability. This is why we have gospel communities. Yes, I enjoy a good meal, and we enjoy sometimes studying scripture and praying, and sometimes playing games, and sometimes just hanging out. But we need that life on life. We also have smaller discipleship groups that we just started a couple weeks ago called Tables. That's the whole purpose of those, that you can grow closer to God and closer to one another as you study scripture and pray for one another. If you're not in one of those, I highly encourage you to get in one of those. If you're not sure what they are, pull me aside afterwards, and we'll, we'll fill you in. Because the leadership of this church recognizes that we were not meant to do life alone. And in a city like ours, it's so much easier to not press into the things of God, but to run away from the things of God. I've seen this narrative play out multiple times. Personal friends of mine, people I met who moved into the city who, who yeah, we're just kind of looking for a church. And, you know, we're from this place, transplants here. And before you know it, they stop seeing the need for the church. They say, you know what? You know, we really enjoy hiking and camping and riding motorcycles and doing these type of things on the weekends. I'm like, man, I get it. I enjoy doing those things too. But they start replacing that. They go, man, we're good. It's just us and God. It's just us and God. We're kind of having our own little, own little church service here. But then pretty soon I've noticed that they stop needing the things of God at all. And they just run away from it entirely. And our city wants nothing more than that. The enemy that's at work at play wants nothing more than that. He wants nothing more than to see Every single church in the city failed. All the people, he wants to see you guys be sent out here to go and enjoy the playground of the Pacific Northwest, not to press into the kingdom of God. Mark Sayers has this idea that people are isolated and they crave connection, especially in our, our modern society with technology. So people are isolated and they crave connection, but they so idolize personal freedom that they won't sacrifice it in order to build actual community. Our city is plagued by this. I hear this all the time. Man, I just desperately need community. I seek community. And I'm like, amen. That's exactly what we're trying to do here. We'd love to provide an imperfect, I always like add that part, an imperfect community for you to be part of. And then inevitably, all of a sudden, you realize now they didn't actually want community. They wanted it, but not enough. They still prefer their personal freedom, and they idolize their personal freedom over the biblical community that God had kind of gifted to them. Initially, the calling and burdening for planting a church, this church, Sojourn, it was given to myself and Andrea. I still think back to, to our house, and, and we processed this and prayed through this and met with more people than I like to admit on uh, really kind of an assessment of, do you guys have what it takes, and do you really have this calling, or was this an idea that you got from a book? But Jesus is the one that's building his church, and what's encouraging to me is he's also given many of you sitting here that same calling and burden, that it wasn't just to me. Because if it was just to me, I said, God, I'm lonely. Please help provide some people for me. And so one of the beautiful aspects as I look at the church that Jesus is building is he has given this calling to you just as much as he has given this calling to me. And so you've probably heard me, if you spend any amount of time with me, I always say, Sojourn's not about me, this church plan is not about me, and it's not about you. It's really not about any of us, but it's all about joining Jesus and what it is that he is building here in this city, and he wants us to be a, a group of people that exist for the good of the city. And we get to join Jesus as he unites all things back to himself. And we get to invite others on that journey. So that's one of the beautiful things. As we can say, corporately, collectively, God has given us this calling. And we each have this role to play in, in the building of a church that Jesus builds it. And we kind of, he delegates the different tasks and the roles and area of giftedness 
But then we get to invite others who are watching. What is it you guys are doing over there? And say, come join us on this journey and learn what it means to follow Jesus and follow him faithfully in this city. If we as a group, a church family, are to be for the city, then I believe there will be a sacrifice. Most of us get nervous when we hear that word. But there will be a sacrifice as we are unified under one vision, similar to what we see in chapter 3 with Nehemiah. In order to live this out, we need to be a people who hear from the, first, the voice of God firsthand and own the vision. We need to be a people who step out with bold, reckless trust in God. We need to be a people who fear holding anything back from God and not fear commitment. We need to be a people who feel privileged to be part of the movement of God. You ever think about that? It's, it's a privilege to be part of what God is doing here. It's a privilege to be part of what God is building in this city. We need to be a people who see possibilities and dream about what could be. Yes, there's lots of areas of brokenness in our city. Lots of people have written our city off. So there's no hope for that city. But I want us to be a people who say, no, we see the possibilities. We admit there is some brokenness. But then we, as we look at our own lives, we say, but I also have brokenness. My own brokenness is reflected in some of the brokenness in the city. And so we see the possibilities and dreams about what could be. That we are people who see problems and we seek solutions. That we don't just see the problems of the city and just point out those problems. That's really easy to do. Just pick up the newspaper or turn on CNN and you can say, man, look at all this stuff that's happening in our city. This is, this is awful. I have people ask me this sometimes. How can you live there? So it's really easy to point out the flaws. But to say, no, we are seeking solutions. This is why we partner with groups like the Portland Rescue Mission and we do our serve night. Places like Embrace Oregon and others in our city. Because we see the problems and we recognize them. But we're also seeking solution to those problems. We should be people who expect personal sacrifice over personal comfort. Being back in the state where I grew up and I made a mistake. I started looking at house prices just out of curiosity. And what I used to think was a really big and expensive house no longer seems very expensive. It's still very big, like really, really big, like mansions. And going, man, I could get that much of a house. I could get that much of a house and a yard and live, you know, right in downtown or near downtown for the price that I might be one day able to get a house for here. And realizing, man, it takes sacrifice sometimes on all of our parts to be part of what it is that God wants us to do. There's personal comforts that we could have living near family. Many of us are, have left family to be part of what God is doing here. We need to be people who assume personal responsibility rather than assuming someone else will do it. As we all work together, as we see the different needs. And we need to be people who are willing to do whatever it takes, not only what we're asked to do, in order for the good of the city. Which is really about everything that we do. I think about all the outreach stuff. We're, just, we're kind of getting ready to go into fall tomorrow. My favorite season and the best kept secret of Portland is fall. But summer was so busy and all the outreach we had and all the different things that we do. and go. We all do it for the city, for the good of the city where God has called us to be. And through this process, remembering that it's, it's not about ourselves. It's not even about sojourn. But it's ultimately for the glory of God and the mission that he has called us on to collectively. As we see the kingdom of God here as it is in heaven. In order for us to become a church as for the city, we must treasure the gospel so that it shakes us from the apathy that plagues our city. Visiting with our sending church last week, and everyone's wondering, what are the challenges? What do you see people being receptive to? And when do you guys gather? And you know, they want all these things, so they're all excited about it. But one of the challenges that people kept asking about that is that our city is plagued by apathy. People just kind of don't care. <laughs> people just don't care about the church. People don't care about what it is that, that we're doing, the, the big C church, what they're doing. And unfortunately, 
And I'm not saying about this about our church, but as I've met with other pastors and met with other churches, apathy has seeped its way into the life of the church in the city of Portland. And that's something I want us to kind of protect and guard against. And that we will treasure this message that Jesus has given us and that we'll fight against the attitude of apathy. In order to not be plagued by this, we must love Jesus. We must treasure his gospel message. We must rest in him and seek to do everything that we can for the glory of God. Now this chapter, it celebrates and commemorates the unity of purpose in the building of the wall. And in it, we see five characteristics, not promises. I'm not saying these are one for one, but there are some characteristics that come out of this on kingdom progress. The first of those is kingdom progress is not for the elite few, but it's for every single follower of Jesus. And so we see Nehemiah enlisted every single type of person, every single type of trade for this job. Churches get this messed up all the time. They only, a lot of churches only allow ordained seminary trained professionals to do the work of ministry, to do the baptizing, to do the, the, the distribution of communion, to do these types of things. But if you remember back to our Ephesians series, those of you who are with us in Ephesians 4, it talks about all of us playing a part. And so Nehemiah said, everyone needs to be in on this. We all have a part to play. The second characteristic is king, for kingdom progress. It happens best when we all work together. And so what we see here, in order for Nehemiah to really pull this off, there had to be unity. And there had to be unity in the group. And that's what we see take place. Now the, now the full book, if you read the full book, if you read ahead, it's not always a pretty picture. But to the point that we are right now, it's like watching a, a TV show where in episode three, there is unity in order to pull, pull off this rebuilding of the wall. Everyone knows that there's a job, they know what their job is, and they do it. The third characteristic of kingdom progress happens by working wisely. And so we kind of see here in this chapter that, that Nehemiah puts a plan into action. So he comes up with a plan, and then they follow through with the plan. And we see that this allows the work to be efficient and succinct. The fourth kingdom pro, uh, characteristic of kingdom progress, it happens when everyone lives sacrificially, which I hit on a minute ago. In verse 27 and 30, it says, After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelef, you can tell why I didn't want to read the whole chapter because, you know, I'd mess up some of these names, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And so what do we see there? What, are, what do those two verses mean? What we see is the people are giving up of their time, they're offering up their talents and treasure for the work. They say, we are going to do what it takes in order to see the rebuilding of this wall. And at times, we read where they're taking care of a certain area. Sure, they're taking care of their own area, like most of us would want to do. But then they're also taking care of other areas that really don't even relate to them. And then the fifth characteristic of kingdom progress is it still happens even when some don't work. In verse 5, I found this very interesting. It says, the next to them, the Tickleites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So the Tickleites, the, the nobles from Tekoa, they likely resented Nehemiah's leadership. And so there will always be some who consider the task and the vision that God has given of the kingdom of God. They're going to say, I don't, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to labor with this. So they're kind of standing back going, Nehemiah, we know more than you. And we don't want to get on board with the vision that God has given to you. So not everyone, although he's calling everyone to get on board, there are some who refuse. One commentary said it this way. Not everything in the kingdom of God is pretty. Some of the Lord's people can make the worst of friends and the most disloyal companions. Some Christians shine in complaining. 
and standing on the sidelines and offering unhelpful criticisms. We've probably all known these types of people. And unfortunately, that's just a reality, but it happened here in Nehemiah chapter 3, and it happens today in the city of Portland in 2019. They would not stoop. It says they would not stoop like it's below them to serve the Lord, and it's suggestive of the resentment against the new leadership. Not everyone knew Nehemiah. Not everyone was happy that Nehemiah was the guy who got this role. They thought it should have been someone else. Maybe they thought it should have been them. And they failed to exhibit the humility of Jesus. If you look at John 13, 14, and 15, it says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And so may we never be the people that are too noble, that are too filled with knowledge for the tasks given by God, for the tasks that are given to this church. Tim Keller points out that we see Jesus, he came essentially to make us citizens of the ultimate city. Isaiah 26.1 says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. And so what we read about Jerusalem in the Old Testament, we know that it's pointing to something bigger, that there's something bigger coming, that it's a representation of that. It's not literal walls, but the walls of salvation are going to protect us from sin and from death. It's not a physical city, but it's a spiritual city that will come down out of heaven and and at the end of time and turn the heavens and earth into a new heavens and a new earth. I think this is a piece of the gospel that we often can miss. That yes, it is about salvation, but sometimes we get misdirected and think it's only about when we die and go to heaven. But there's something else greater going on here that God wants us to exist for this city. And he launched this movement when his life, his death, and his resurrection of the kingdom of God. And this is what we are called to do as well. And when we put Nehemiah into that larger story, we begin to see the greater narrative arc of of Scripture. Of what it actually is pointing to. And in light of God's faithfulness, we are invited to live and work for his kingdom. This should encourage us that we're also being invited into this greater narrative, into this greater story. That's what Nehemiah and his crew are doing. They're working in God's kingdom in light of God's faithfulness. But they were not perfect. In fact, they never would be. Over and over again, the story of the Old Testament tells that God's people would not remain faithful to his covenant. They continue to break it, continue to break it, and continue to break it. They would constantly need to be called back and reminded of the faithfulness of God. And so God doesn't save them because of their their faithfulness. He saves them because of his faithfulness. The wall they built might be able to protect them from the opposition of neighboring peoples, but it could not protect them from the rebellion in their own hearts. They continue to stumble and they continue to fall into these things. So just as God fought for them in the building of the wall, God fought for them in keeping of the covenant. And that God would send a faithful covenant keeper, his son Jesus, who lived perfectly in relationship with him. He would live the life of faithfulness that no Jew could ever live, the life that you and I could never live. And in Jesus, we see that God is faithful, not only to his side of the covenant, but to ours as well. He is faithful on our behalf. So if you realize, hopefully you have realized, that you can't be faithful, you can't keep these things, but that Jesus is faithful to his side of it and to our side of it. So if you're in here and you don't know this God through Jesus, your response isn't, okay, let me get to work fixing my life. Your response isn't, let me do more things to be accepted by God. It's to look to the one who was faithful on your behalf and to trust him that he can make you acceptable to God and he and he alone. And if you're in here and you say, I I am a Christian, then let's reflect tonight on the faithfulness of the covenant-keeping God. 
He has fought for you. And in light of his faithfulness, let's get to work advancing his kingdom here in our city. So as we wrap up, we move into our time of response. And think about the words that we are singing, that they are praises to God, but they're also praises that we want to overflow into the city where God has placed us. We get to give through our time. Some of us show up here early to set up and brew coffee and do those types of things. We get to give through our talents. And then we also get to give through our treasure. So yes, there's a box back there that you can put prayer requests in. Know that we're praying for you. Maybe you want to offer a prayer up. Maybe that is what you want to give, just a prayer to God. But that's also a place that we put our tithes and offerings to say we want to help advance your kingdom here because we exist for the good of the city and we want to give our best to you. And then finally through the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine that we consider a family meal. And we say that any person who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and trust in him is invited to come and partake of the elements. In Luke 22, 19 through 20, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so we do that so we can be reminded of the sacrificial love of Jesus and what it is that Jesus did. It's not just so that we can go through a ritual every single week. It can easily become that, but I want us to always take it very seriously. What it is it actually represents, what it is that we're actually doing. And so for some of you, maybe you need to take a moment prior to getting up. Maybe you just need to sit in a, in a posture of worship. Maybe you need to kneel down at your chair in the front and do it. ask God to inspect your heart prior to getting up and taking of the elements. Maybe some of you need prayer. Say, hey, you know what, I've got something going on in my life, it could be something in your family's life. I always try to make myself available in the back if you need prayer. And just know that that is always offered to you. Once again, there's prayer cards if you'd rather just write it down and we'll pray for that this week. So let me pray for us. We'll respond accordingly and then Mandy will come back up and close us out and worship through song. God, we want to come to you and thank you for this kingdom work that you have invited us into. God, that you have placed us here, you have called us to a common calling, a common goal, as we join you in unifying 